Hello, welcome. I'm so glad that you've joined us and for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we've been examining a very fundamental premise in the gospel. And that is the plan of salvation. And we have seen that in the Bible, the plan of salvation involves... Hearing, believing, confessing, repenting, being baptized, and being obedient. We've already seen the importance of hearing the gospel. That if we're going to believe it or go any further, we must first know what it is. And Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. If somebody is going to hear, they need to have someone speaking to them. And if somebody's going to speak to them, they must be sent out. And we have been summoned to call, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, we must take the gospel to people. We've seen that we need to believe in Jesus, not just giving mental acceptance to the idea that he is the Lord in Christ, but to put our trust in him and to be willing to do the things that he says. And we demonstrate our belief or putting of our faith in him by first confessing him which is taking that idea that we have in our heads that jesus is lord and being willing to say i believe jesus the christ is a living god and to make good on that confession by how we live and that we repent that we look to the future and we see that we need to stop doing the things that we've done that we're not consistent with the way of christ and that we're going to do the things that jesus has established and we need to make that mental decision which is what repentance is it's mental change for the better and then we've seen that we need to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins in the name of jesus so that we can have the the sins of our past cleansed through the blood of christ to be restored in relationship with god and to become a christian and we didn't talk about with baptism that that is that's the end of what we call initial conversion that the point of one being baptized one is now a Christian, one has been entered into the Church of Christ, the universal church, and is free to associate with a local assembly of God's people. Now, for a lot of times in many places, that's it with the plan of salvation. Okay, you've the five points: hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. And uh, the story and legend goes that the five-point plan of salvation was based upon the fact that a preacher could identify that with the fingers upon his hand. And so many are very familiar with a five-fold idea of the plan of salvation. Hear, believe, confess, repent, be baptized. But throughout our study, uh, if you've been going with us as we've looked into these other aspects of the plan of salvation, I hope that you've been able to see that we're trying to establish plan of salvation as rooted in the Bible. And every time we've looked at these various aspects, to hear the gospel, because hearing faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ in Romans 10, 17, belief, you need to believe to be saved, Acts 16, 31. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that you must confess to be saved. In uh, Acts 2, 38, when Peter, when the Christians asked, what shall, the Jews on the day of Pentecost asked, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and let each of you be baptized uh, for forgiveness of your sins. Uh, that these things are all necessary for salvation. So we're looking at what the scriptures have to say. And do we see the scriptures say that anything else is necessary to be saved? And in fact, the scriptures attest widely to the need to persevere in the gospel in order to be saved. 
Uh, our Lord himself in Matthew 10 and verse 22 declared that you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the one who endures and continues in the faith will be saved. It's interesting to note in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus uh, makes a very interesting statement in parallelism in John 3 and in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So notice the contrast. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But if you do not obey the Son, you will not see life. So people wonder, what happens if you believe but don't obey? There's no room for that in the parallelism. Because if you believe, you will obey. If you do not believe, you will not obey. And so that's why there is this emphasis here on obedience. And there's a direct association here between belief and obedience. Likewise, we see this often, frequently in the negative. In Romans chapter 2 and in verse 8, Paul says that there, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So those who obey unrighteousness, do not obey the truth, have wrath and fury. But those who, uh, by patience, well-doing, see for glory and honor and immortality, will give eternal life, in verse 7. So we can see there that there's this idea of persistence and obedience in the faith. And if you are not obedient, there is wrath, there is condemnation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and in verse 5, Paul says that he we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So notice there even there the emphasis on obey, to obey Christ should even take thoughts captive. And uh, in Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, like Romans 2 and verse 8, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus are the ones who will be consigned to uh, eternal destruction away from the, His power and might. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, even among Christians, uh, Paul has to say regarding those who are not doing the things that they have been told to do and encouraged to do, that the, in verse 14 that if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, but so he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Hebrews 5 and verse 9, that God is the author of salvation to those who obey him. And in 1 John 5 and verse 2, so many people want to know how uh, we know about our relationship with God. Well, in verse he says that by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Like in chapter 2 where he had established that we can know that we have come to know him in 1 John 2, 3 if we keep his commandments. And so we see throughout these passages both in the positive sense of the need to be obedient and in the negative sense of the consequences that will come for disobedience why obedience is so important and in fact is part of the plan of salvation is something that we need to do if we're going to be saved we need to obey the lord jesus christ we've seen it in belief we see it's inherent in the idea of repentance that what you're thinking needs to be put into action so it's something that we do need to do 
if our plan of salvation ends at baptism, it's not God's plan of salvation. It's God's purposes do not end for us at baptism. In fact, as we're going to see, they really begin for us at baptism. This is a difficult concept, though, for Americans, because Americans pride themselves in independence from inherited authority and have a suspicion and skepticism of an inherited authority. Uh, Americans don't like taking orders from anybody. Uh, witness what happens if somebody gets pulled over by the police. Uh, witness what happens if uh, the one of the uh, rulers of the country asks them to do something that they may not be entirely enthralled with. Um, it seems very much part of the American nature. Uh, I don't answer to you. I don't answer to anybody. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, of course, that's a very antithetical attitude to the idea of obedience. And it's not surprising to see so many Americans these days who've just taken down, gone down their own path that have disregarded the path of God as he's revealed in Jesus. So can we do that, though? Do we have the right just to do what we want and to act like, well, God should just be happy with uh, uh, how I'm doing the best that I can? Well, it's not exactly clear. It's, not, it's consistent with what we see in Scripture. It's very interesting. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 5, uh, the Hebrew author provides this interesting comparison for uh, believers. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the, his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best for that to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So, in this passage and other passages, we get to the, this illustration of our relationship with God in terms of God as a father and we as a children. And that's the love that, that God has for us, and that's for, that the love of a parent for a child, and we show the love of a child for a parent toward our Heavenly Father. But of course, we see also in this that there is an authority role, that the father is the authority over the child, and the child is expected to obey the father. We see this in Ephesians 6, uh, Colossians 4, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay. Excuse me, Colossians 3.20. Uh, you obey your parents because it is right. If we're to obey our earthly parents who do what they're doing for our good, it doesn't mean to them. Shall we not much more subject ourselves to the Father's spirit? Shall we not absolutely obey our Heavenly Father so that we can live? But, of course, a major part of the problem in America and, and throughout time has been not totally understanding what's going on. When we talked about baptism, we mentioned Romans 6. Paul will continue to talk in Romans 6 about the relationship between the Christian and sin. And um, he talks about the fact that we're not under law, but under grace. And actually, shall we sin because we're under law, not under law, but under grace? Is by no means. And he says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone... 
as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and may have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. <clears throat> in America, we emphasize freedom and the idea that we are free people. And that means that we can do as we please within certain limits. The, the Bible kind of reverses this here. Paul says, you are a slave. You do not have the choice about whether you are a slave or not. That has That's already in the cards based upon uh, sin and the relationships that go on in this world. We're always in the subservient position, no matter what. The question is not whether are you are free or not. The question is, which master are you going to serve? You're either a doulos, a slave or servant of sin or Satan, on the one hand, or righteousness or God, on the other hand. Um, doulos is properly slave. Uh, it can refer to servant. Uh, the fact that we have the limited choice of choosing God or Satan means you could look at that in terms of a servant if the idea of a slave is terribly offensive. But the word slave is being used consistently by Christians to describe the relationship with God, tempered always by their understanding that they are the children of God and that Jesus now calls them friends in John 14 and 15 and things of that nature, uh, but as a good antidote to the idea of becoming an entitled child or taking for granted what God has done for us. So they're kind of it's held in tension a little bit with these other illustrations of relationship with God. But it's important for us to realize we are slaves. We are slaves. And so we need to just recognize that say, being a slave of sin isn't worth it, and it's not getting what we need. Instead, we need to be a slave or a servant of God. And Jesus has a great discussion illustration of this in Luke chapter 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, uh, Luke 17, Luke 17 helps to have the right reference, right? Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he has done what is commanded? So you also, when you have done what all that was commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And throughout, of course, the word servant is the Greek doulos, which can mean slave. So, in this world, we are filled with so many people who, who, who want commendation and encouragement. And there's actually a deep need for that, a deep need for encouragement to be affirmed that what you are doing is good and right, when it is good and right, of course. nothing Untold damage can be done when you encourage somebody whose work isn't what it should be. Uh, but what... Jesus is pointing out here is that in a master-slave relationship, you don't get brownie points for doing what you're commanded to do. That's just expected. And in a very real sense, that's the way it's supposed to be. That when we look at ourselves and all the things that we've done for God, it's not, hey, look how amazing, I need a gold star. Uh, it's instead, I'm 
I'm just an unworthy servant. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. That's the attitude that is in service and obedience. Now, this is not the heritage of America in many ways, but we have to be obedient to God, and we have to obey the Father and the Son if we want eternal life. Uh, We need to have the humility to be willing to subject ourselves before God to do that, and to make His will our will. And to submit our minds and bodies and feelings and all that is ours to God and His purposes, so that we are honestly, with integrity, working for Him, and we're not just using God as a pretext to do what we want to do and justify what we want to justify. So, we need to obey God. Obey God. We need to be obedient. How are we going to obey God? It's a good question to ask. And from Scripture, uh, it's a very easy answer. We are to do His will and to avoid all things that are not His will. So we're to do the things He told us to do and we're to avoid doing the things He told us not to do. Well, that's easy. But uh, easy to say, at least. It's not very easy to do. But to note first that to even say such a thing requires us to know His will. How, after all, can we know whether we're supposed to do something or not do something unless we, we understand that it is right to do or wrong to do? Um, so we first have to rightly divide the truth to be a servant who has no need to be ashamed at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. This is why in Acts 2.42 the early Christians uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrines to understand the truth of Scripture. So we need to avoid sin and practice what is right. Uh, involves showing love like we should. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 1 John 4 all speak uh, powerfully about the nature of the love that God has for us and how we're to have that kind of love for one another. In Galatians 5, 19-23, we have the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. That sexual morality, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, outbursts of anger, dissension, division, things like that were to avoid, and love, and joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control are the characteristics that we need to cultivate and to express in our lives. And the whole idea is seen in Romans 14.23, that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, that our, our goal is not to figure out, well, what's not what has God condemned so that we can see what's wrong and just stand at the line there between right and wrong, right there at the boundary and get as close as we can? No, we're supposed to stay firmly in the right and to seek authority and to seek an understanding what God would have us to do and what makes it commendable, what makes it worthy uh, to think upon and to do and to go from there. And we also need to keep James 4.17 in mind where James says that whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin that the sins of omission, that not doing the good is no better than doing the evil. And not doing the good is, is, is no better than not doing the evil in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, a lot of people want to establish their righteousness on the idea of what they aren't doing as opposed to what they are doing. And that's not entirely consistent with the idea of obedience. So that's how we obey God, to, to do His will. Uh, but something that's very important about that exhortation is, is the realization as we encourage people to obey the Lord Jesus and to do His will, that in fact we're at different stages in the path that we're on with God. And this is even seen in the, if there's a purpose statement in the church, it's in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. 
where Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the idea here is that all of these different roles exist in the church, not because um, uh, they just feel like it, and and certainly not this idea that God expects Christians to just be autonomous little individual units and figuring everything out on their own. No, the realization that there are more mature and less mature Christians, and there's a need to equip Christians to grow in the knowledge of God, and if you grow in that knowledge, it helps you know what to do and not to do, and to encourage them to do the things of God and to avoid the things of evil so that we can all attain to the unity of the faith and to reach maturity in the faith. That we're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that we are grounded in our understanding of the truth. This also is a concern of the Hebrew author. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, he says about this, that Jesus says, High Priest Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go into maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So right here, again, it's important to keep in mind, Hebrew author is probably writing in the 60s to Hebrew Christians who would have been baptized in the 30s. So it's been 20, 25, 30 years. You know, some have trans, you know, past 10 to 15, 20 years. He's still expecting to see a certain amount of fruit based upon that amount of time to faith, and he doesn't see it. In fact, he needs to go back to these elementary principles, and that really distresses him because they should be the ones teaching others these principles by now. And so he's rebuking them because they should, by this point, be on solid food, so to speak, to have reached maturity, to handle the meat of the word and not the elementary doctrines. This in and of itself is not an indictment of being on the milk or be starting at the elementary doctrines. Hebrew author isn't writing to them a year after their conversion, two years after their conversion, no. And so it's important to see here that there is the expectation of development. To the point where here we have Christians rebuked because they have not been developing in their faith the way that they should. And we see here that maturity is defined as the ability to distinguish good from evil through constant practice. Uh, which inherently involves knowledge of God and that it's being put into practice. Another important illustration we can find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge living in the dead, by, by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach... Excuse us from Second Timothy. Um, we will now go to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. 
which we are attempting to read at this point. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So, the Thessalonians seem to be very mature Christians. They have learned the doctrines of Jesus. They are putting them into practice in their lives. Paul's commending them. Do they say that they're all good now? They can coast. No, he says they need to do it, to keep doing it, and to abound all the more in it. There's no retirement here in Christianity. There's no resting on the laurels. There's always more room to grow, more to learn, more to practice, more to love. And that's what Paul really wants the Thessalonians to keep in mind. uh, That they've always got to grow in their faith. And so yes, development in Christ is required for a pleasing faith to God. And we even see this in life. Where You don't just stay still in life. You can't just find a, a plateau in life. You're either growing or you're declining. And we have this in cars. How many cars have you had that's run very well until they're not run for some time? You you just let it sit for a while. All of a sudden, uh, everything that uh, used to work well isn't working well. Uh, Even with ourselves. How many things have you forgotten? Skills, knowledge, things like that, because you didn't use it. Uh, How's your foreign language study that you did in high school? Or uh, if you're a, in the humanities in some way, how's your math skills? If you're in the math departments or in the sciences, how are your English skills? You know, some of these things, uh, they just decay because we haven't used them a lot. It's not just in business or in financial matter, and generally in trends of churches. It's also true in our spiritual lives. If we're not growing, we are stagnating. And stagnation really is decline and, and leading to decay and death. And that's why it's so important to understand that, as we've been saying, baptism's not the end, it's a beginning. When, when Paul says that you, are, you, you died in Christ and you're raised to walk in newness of life, newness of life, in John 3, Jesus will talk about it as being, re- being reborn. If you're reborn, you're a baby. You're a baby, you need milk. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, that you yearn for this milk of the word. And and babies then need to grow. And so it's very good for us to see that there is the spiritual component of that growth and development. That when we're baptized, we start as spiritual babies. And then we grow in the faith spiritually. And thanks be to God that it doesn't take as many years to mature necessarily in the faith as it did in real life. You don't really start figuring out things about the faith necessarily after 30 years. You can do it a few fewer than that, hopefully. Although, if it takes 30 years, as long as that has happened, as long as your growth process has increased and you are growing, that, that is to be commended. And so we see this food thing in Hebrews 5, 6, that, you know, stop meat, not milk, not meat. And, of course, that's, that's talking about what a person can handle in terms of teaching and practice, and the idea is that we're to grow out of milk to meat, just as we do in, in life. Um, and so as we 
said, you can grow very quickly in the faith if you want, but the other problem with that is, and there's a problem with that, is that also sometimes there are people who have been in the pews 30, 40, 50 years, and you haven't seen much spiritual growth. A situation very much akin to the situation frustrating the Hebrew author. And so, uh, and sometimes they've known that. Some Christians who have been only Christian a couple of years, but they seem really mature, and Christians have been the Christians all our lives, and you just aren't seeing the fruit. And that's one of the things about development, is it happens at different levels for various reasons. But they, we need to be exhorting people to grow in their faith. And it's not something... Where, where the illustration breaks down is here in... Life, we mat- if we hit certain age points, unless there's some particular syndrome we're experiencing, maturity is inevitable. Those brain chemicals start working, and the changes happen whether we want them to or not. That it's an f- inevitable transition. But in spiritual matters, the transition is not inevitable. We have to put in concerted effort to grow in our faith. That's the idea in First Corinthians nine of the of the illustration. Yeah, of the faith as a race. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So we have to put in effort. We must run so as to win. We must put devote our resources to that idea. And this is an important thing for us to remember in all the various aspects of our lives. You only get and grow as much as you put into it. So, you learn the Bible as quickly and as well as the effort you put into learning the Bible. You only get out of the assemblies and studies with brethren what you put into the assemblies and studies with brethren. Maturity is something we must decide to do. We must not think it will just happen automatically. No, we need to work at it. And really, the point is that we grow to the point where it's really no longer a matter of obedience. It's disobedience anymore. Notice that we'd say that you know we are under grace and not under law. Now, of course, that does not mean in any way, shape, or form, Romans 6, that there's no standard anymore. And some people have taken it to mean that's a distortion. Paul says, when you're under grace, you have become obedient to the standard teaching to which you've been committed. It doesn't obviate the need for obedience. That's not what he's saying at all. We're to, we're to grow to the point where we are sinning much less frequently. We should point maturity where sin is much less a part of our lives. And that allows us to focus on that which is profitable, which builds up to work in love. And we have really developed that love for one another. And we really worked on patience. And we really developed that understanding of right and wrong. It's going to be a lot harder to choose the wrong. A lot easier to choose the right than it might have been earlier. That we can be like the Thessalonians seeking to excel more and more. And that's the thing, we're striving to reach that point where we're not sinning anymore. First John 1 John 1.8, we're, it's very clear we're not going to reach it, and we deceive ourselves if we're thinking we're going to reach it. Some, to this day, suggest that we can reach a point of sinlessness, and the scriptures do not really suggest that. Uh, that should be our goal. We should not necessarily be excusing sin in our lives, obviously. But we need to realize that we are weak, and that there is always more ways in which we can grow. 
there are always ways that we can do better and that as long as we are in this flesh in this current condition we will continue to fall short of the glory of God but we can excel more and more and we can abound more and more as we seek to obey the Lord Jesus and continue to grow and that is why Peter says without any qualification at the end of his letter 2 Peter 3 and verse 18 grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ if you are a newly baptized Christian you've been a Christian for 50 years 75 years grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that is something that we all can do so we do need to obey and develop yes hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. But we also need to be obedient to develop and mature in our faith. That we are the children of God, which puts God as the authority figure. We are the slaves of God as master. And so we are to do what he says. That we start out in the faith as babies, and we grow from that if we put the effort into it to grow. And we need to put that effort into the grow. Or we will atrophy spiritually and uh, may find ourselves in the, in the category that is obedient. That's certainly not something we want to see for, for anybody. For you, for me, for anybody we know. We want them to be found obedient and to found pleasing in the sight of God our Father on the final day. So let us strive as we can to be obedient servants of God and to develop into maturity in the faith. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about today, or maybe you'd like to talk more about the plan of salvation, maybe you've got some questions, maybe you've got some disagreements about some of the things we've talked about, or maybe you just have a prayer request, or you just need to talk about something, anything, let me know. Please contact me through our website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ, uh, please find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media, Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Venice Church, or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.